We're continuing on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts 21, and then we'll read through Acts 22:21. So Acts 21, beginning at verse 37. And this, uh, the context here, there was a, basically a riot breaking out. Uh, the Jews were in the process of killing Paul when the Roman armies came and they stopped beating him. The Roman armies spared his life and they were taking him to jail, which was for his own protection so that the crowd wouldn't kill him. And they were crying away, away with him. And then verse 37 picks up the story. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the um, assistants into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And then when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders, or excuse me, as the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, And I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bond to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is pointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said to me, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of all that you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw Him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, 
because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of all who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, your word says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And here we are some 2,000 years later, reading your word, and it has continued to abide. And I want to ask that it will abide in our hearts, that it will take root, and that it will bear much fruit in our lives. And we ask this so that you will be glorified and Jesus Christ will be exalted. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Acts 22, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Uh, this Greek word for defense is apologia. You might guess that we get the English word apology from this Greek word. But Paul is most certainly not apologizing for being a Christian. He is not apologizing for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we also get the English word apologetics from that Greek word. Um, apologetics is a big fancy term that means the defense of the faith. Um, those who are involved in apologetics provide logical, coherent answers to such questions as why does God exist or can we prove the existence of God? Uh, can we explain the deity of Christ? Can we explain why we need to have our sin atoned for? Or can we give a rational argument for miracles, including uh, the resurrection of Christ? Now, you may not be able to provide solid answers to difficult theological and philosophical questions. However, I hope you can provide a defense for why you go to church on Sunday. I hope you can give a defense or an answer as to why you believe in Jesus or simply why you're a Christian. This is what we read in 1 Peter 3.15. Peter writes, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. And then he says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. Always be prepared. Always be ready for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. For why you have hope that you're going to have eternal life. Why you have hope that your sins are forgiven. Be ready to give an answer for that. And then he says, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's very important. Have an answer ready, but give your answer with gentleness. Do it with respect. Having a good conscience because you live an upright, godly life. Now, I think our text this morning is basically an incarnation of this passage. Paul provides a defense. And his very life is a defense. Now, before we get to that defense, um, I want to look at a little bit of the background leading up to it, in case you haven't been with us. In 2130, there was a false accusation made against Paul. The people were saying that Paul was speaking out against the Jews and against the law and against the temple. wasn't true whatsoever, but that's what people were saying. And then they also accused him of bringing uncircumcised Greeks into the temple. Now again, in case you weren't here last week, um, there was what was called the courts of the Gentiles. And there was about a fence about four and a half feet high around the court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles could go that far, but they couldn't go any further. If they went beyond the courts of the Gentiles, there was a sign set up that basically said, you enter at your own risk. And the Jews had the legal right to execute anybody who went beyond that fence. And they thought that Paul had brought uncircumcised Gentiles beyond that fence and had defiled the temple. And in their mind, that was blasphemous. They were absolutely outraged. And because of that, they physically seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple area. They closed the gates. And they were in the process of killing him. That's what the text says. And it's not an exaggeration. They were killing him until the Romans heard that there's a riot going on in the temple area. They came down the steps. They were gathered together in some barracks, basically, in the corner of the temple. They came down, and when the crowd saw the Roman armies, probably hundreds of them, they stopped beating the Apostle Paul, which was probably a good thing, because he was probably within an inch of his life. Because they really were intending to kill him. After they stopped beating Paul, uh, the tribunes trying to figure out what's going on. He asked the people what's taking place. And some of the crowd said one thing and some of the crowd said another thing. So he couldn't figure out what was going on, why they were all upset over this man, why they were killing him. So they bound Paul with two chains. They arrested him and they were taking him away to jail again so that he wouldn't be killed. Now, as they're taking him away, the text says that because of the violence of the crowd, they actually had to carry the Apostle Paul. And, and this is how I picture it in my mind. They were carrying him high up away from the crowd so that he wouldn't be killed. And as they're taking him away to jail, the crowd is crying out, away with him. Just like they cried out with Jesus some 27 years earlier. Away with him. And as they're taking Paul away to the barracks, Paul asks if he can address the crowd. Now, what do you think of that? 
Let, let me ask you this. If, if you had just been beaten within an inch of your life, you narrowly escape because the Roman armies come, they seize you, they arrest you, and they're taking you away from the crowd, and you're going to a safe place, would you say before they take you to safety, now wait, can I say something to the crowd first? You, you, you mean the crowd over there that hates your guts? Yeah, that crowd right over there. The liberal German theologian Ernst Haitchen thinks this whole story is a fabrication. He thinks the whole thing is made up. He said, A man who has only just been beaten up by a fanatical mob is physically no longer capable of making such a speech. This reason suffices to prove that the speech and the dialogue preparing for it are unhistorical. So in other words, he looks at this passage and he says, I don't believe it for a minute. There is no way that Paul could have made that speech after what had just happened to him. Unless, unless what Archie Sproul said is true. The power of the Holy Spirit came upon the apostle and with a mere gesture of his hand, the screaming crowd was silent. Now, the text doesn't say that the Holy Spirit came upon the Apostle Paul, but I think without a doubt the Holy Spirit did come upon the Apostle Paul, which is why he was able to make the speech that he did. The Holy Spirit whispered in his ear, as it were, it's time for you to make your defense and proclaim the Gospel in the process. And he was able to do the miraculous. And you know what? You and I also can do the miraculous. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul said, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. And when you are tempted, He will provide a way of escape. Which means whatever God brings your way, you can handle it. You can handle it. As Christians, we, we can never say, I can't handle it, Lord. You can handle it. Because His grace and His power will come upon you. And He will provide a way of escape. Or He will provide power. Or He will provide grace. Or He will provide encouragement. He will provide whatever you need for the moment. Because you're not just a human being. You're a Christian filled with the Spirit of the living God. God will provide for you even in the most difficult of circumstances. And that's what's happening to Paul here. He is able to do the miraculous. He's able to make a defense. And he gives his defense. And we can basically divide it into three points. First, he defends his Jewish credentials. Then he defends his Christian conversion. And then he defends his Gentile calling. So let's take those one at a time. First, he defends his Jewish credentials. Again, let me remind you that all this violence and hostility began with two false accusations. They said he's speaking against the Jewish people. He's speaking against the law of Moses. He's speaking against our sacred temple. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. I... I'm just as much a Jew as you are. And in several ways, he makes that point. First of all, 
He makes it by speaking to the people in the Hebrew language. He speaks in their native tongue. Just, just by speaking Hebrew, they listen to Him. And in fact, I, I like how Luke presents it. In verse 40, it says, When Paul was standing on the steps, he motioned with his hand, and Luke says, And there was a great hush. Now that's pretty significant because you have this violent mob. They're crying out away with him. Paul's being led away, but then he stops on the stairs. He motions with his hand, some kind of gesture. And there's a great hush. The people are thinking, I wonder what he's going to say. And then he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make before you. And then Luke says, and when they heard that, he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So it's fascinating how the whole disposition of this mob calms down and then there's a quiet because he's speaking to them in their native language. Maybe it would be like me going to Mexico, they know I'm an American, and then I speak in Spanish and, and, you, and you, grab their, you grab their attention and they listen to you. And then the first thing Paul says in verse 3 is, I'm a Jew. And then he says, Born in Tarsus and Cilicia, brought up in this city right here, Jews. I'm one of you. I'm a Jew just like you. And I too was raised in this city. And then he defends himself further by mentioning his education. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, why is that significant? Turn back to Acts 5 in case you... Don't remember. Acts 5. Why does he mention that? Because Gamaliel was a Jewish rabbi, one of the top three most respected rabbis in all of Jerusalem, if not the most respected rabbi. And Paul says, I studied at his feet. I'm one of his disciples. This is what we read in Acts 5. And tell you what, I'll begin at verse 33. And this is after the apostles are arrested for proclaiming the gospel. Uh, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. Uh, 33 says in Acts 5, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, there's our man right there, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people. Notice that. This is why Paul mentions it. Because he studied at his feet and this rabbi is held in honor by all the people. And Gamaliel stood up and he gave orders uh, to put the men outside for a little while. And then he said, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilee, Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all his, all him who, or excuse me, all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, 
You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's insightful. He's not even a believer. But this episode right here tells us why he was held in honor among all the people. He is exercising tremendous wisdom and insight here. Tremendous counsel. Be careful about what you're doing. If this is of men, this whole resurrection of Jesus, it's, it's, it's going to flop. It's not going to go in. But if it's of God, you only find yourselves fighting against God. The Apostle Paul says, I studied at his feet. I'm a Jew. I'm one of you. I even studied at his feet. And then he says, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. And that's a reference to the fact that he was a Pharisee. Why is that significant? Because the Pharisees, more than any other Jewish group, were conservative and took the law seriously. So Paul's reminding them, I studied under Gamaliel. I'm a Pharisee. That group that takes the law very seriously. Why would I be speaking out against the law? I'm a Pharisee. And then he reminds them of his zeal. He says, being zealous for God. And I love this phrase. As all of you are this day. He says, I'm zealous for God. Just as much as you are. And a little earlier, James said, all the people are zealous for the law. And he says, I'm zealous for the law too. Just as much as you are. And I think under his breath he's saying, actually even more than you, but I'll let you decide for yourself. Because he goes on and he says, I persecuted this way. And that was a term to describe the Christian faith at the time. I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I studied under Gamaliel. I'm a Pharisee holding and I am filled with zeal. I not only persecuted people in Jerusalem, I got letters of approval from the elders so that I could go to Damascus to find men, women, and children, bind them up, bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be punished because they were heretical turning away from the Jewish faith. You want to talk about zeal? I'm about as zealous as you can be. And of course, by saying all that, he did a great job of defending himself just by pointing out his life. This is, this is how I live. This is what you're accusing me of. Look at how I live. And there's plenty of witnesses who can testify that this is how I've lived. Now, here's the application for us. If we're going to give a defense for the Christian faith, our life needs to back it up. Our life needs to back it up. Our walk and our talk need to cohere. And when that happens, what we say becomes all the more powerful. I can still remember many years ago when Bill Clinton was President of the United States, um, there was a, a prayer breakfast. Mother Teresa was the main speaker. And she spoke about how terrible abortion was and how devastating it was for culture and the impact that it had. 
And when she was done, there was this huge applaud. Everybody was clapping. Everybody rose to their feet except for Bill and Hillary Clinton and Al and Mrs. Gore who kind of stood there. And then Bill Clinton got up and he said, how can you argue with a life so well lived? So put aside the, the Catholic theology for a moment. Because of how Mother Teresa lived her entire life, it added force to her words. And that's what we saw in 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter said, where Peter said, be ready to divide provide a defense, do it with gentleness and respect, having a clear conscience, and if I can paraphrase, because your godly life will back up what you say. So we want to make sure that our life backs up with what we say. So Paul defends his Jewish credentials and then he defends his Christian conversion and in simple terms, he gives his testimony. In other words, he explains this is when, this is where, this is why, this is how I became a Christian. He says, verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, when the sun is at its highest, a great light shone from heaven around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me. So Paul, I always picture Paul on his high horse. I don't know why it just sounds better to say Paul is knocked off his high horse. But he's headed towards Jerusalem. I don't know if he's walking. I don't know if he was horseback. But he was knocked to the ground. However it was because of this bright light that was brighter than a noonday sun. And then he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Here's the question I have for you. Who was Saul or Paul persecuting? Christians. So why does Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? I can imagine Saul saying, I would never persecute you. I don't know who you are, Lord, but I would never persecute you. Why does, why does Jesus say, why do you persecute me when he was persecuting the church? Because Jesus is one with his bride, the church. That's why. When Jesus is persecuted, or excuse me, when the church is persecuted, Jesus feels it. Last week we took that to the doctor and uh, they needed to draw a little blood. wasn't a pleasant experience. And as they poked him, I winced. I was like, <clears throat> my stomach just went like that. And uh, Michelle was out on the phone. And I'll tell you what I was honestly thinking. Um, I wish she was in here with Zach, and, and I'd really just, I'd really just like to wait out here in the waiting room. <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> and she said later, "Yeah, it's just too hard. <laughs> I'd rather be out there." Every parent in here knows what I'm talking. When when your children go through pain, you feel it. You know, it's like, oh, when they say to the doctor, "You're killing me." <laughs> That's how, that's how it is with Jesus and the church. Jesus basically said to Saul, you're killing me. 
I, I know this becomes a cliche and it's meaningless, but when Jesus says it, He means it. I feel your pain. He really does. Because He is one with His bride, the church. And then the Lord answers and He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now, the, imp- the implications here are huge. You, you have to understand this. Remember, Paul, is he's describing his conversion and he's talking to the Jews. Everybody knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. Everybody knew. Turn back to Luke 24, if you will. I want to begin at verse 13. Context of Luke 24:13 is the first Easter day. Jesus has just risen from the dead a few hours earlier. And then we read in, in Luke 24:13, that very day two of them, two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about 7 miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. And He said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered Him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? Just kind of playing along with them. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Now, there's a lot there, but let me just point this out. Everybody knew Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody knew that He was a prophet, that He was condemned to death, that He died on the cross. Everybody in Jerusalem knew that. And here's the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem saying, I was going to Damascus. A bright light knocked me off my horse asked, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he answered, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Implication. Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be a prophet, who was put to death, was raised from the dead. He is alive. He is reigning. And he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. That's very important. So when he said Jesus of Nazareth, they knew who he was talking about and they understood the implications. Jesus Christ is alive and well and He is reigning and He does not take kindly to His church being persecuted. And then he continued on. And he said, now those who were with me, they saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So just Jesus, whom they killed, is raised from the dead, is reigning, has a mission 
for the Apostle Paul. And then jumping ahead, uh, he comes into Damascus and he mentions that there was one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by, by all the Jews there. And that's very important. So Ananias comes to him. He's a Jew also. He's well spoken of by all the people. You will respect him. Everybody else does. And Ananias came to him and he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see, this is very important as well, the righteous one. Don't overlook that. Ananias says to Paul, you have been appointed to see the righteous one. Not a righteous one, the righteous one. And this is a description of the Messiah who was to come. Let me give you just two verses to back this up. Acts 3.14 Peter is speaking to the Jews and he says in 3.14 But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life who God raised from the dead. So he refers to the Messiah as the Holy and Righteous One. And then turning ahead to Acts 7.52, Stephen is preaching. And this is what we read in Acts 7.52. Stephen says to the Jews, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So the prophets foretold the coming of the righteous one. And here's Ananias saying to Paul, God has appointed you to see the righteous one. And again, the Jews are listening to this and they understand very clearly Paul has seen and heard Jesus of Nazareth because he's been raised from the dead. And Ananias is confirming that Paul was appointed to see the righteous one. And another passage tells us that Ananias confirms that because the Lord spoke to him personally. Now, this is of profound significance because in the midst of this testimony, Paul is declaring the Gospel. He's declaring the Gospel. He's saying Jesus of Nazareth is alive. He's reigning. And I'm testifying to Him. And this is important for us because when we have an opportunity and we're going to have an opportunity from time to time, people are going to ask us, why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? You know, maybe why do you read the Bible? Um, what, whatever the question is, you're going to have an opportunity and tell people what God has done for you. But in doing so, explain who Jesus is. I think this is very important. I mentioned a while back when I had a Sunday off, I went to church and I, I heard a couple of missionaries to Japan and they, and they were setting up a meeting and they wanted these uh, Japanese Christians to give their testimony. In other words, to explain when, where, and how, and why they became Christians. And he said, and when you do so, make sure that you include the Gospel. In other words, make sure that you include the facts about Jesus. And he said he was so disappointed. <laughs> Because what they would say is, I asked Jesus into my heart. Or 
God's changed my life. And he said, I wanted you to include enough so that people listening would know what to do if they wanted to become a Christian. That's very important. And that's what Paul is doing here. So he's not only explaining his, his testimony, but he's doing so in such a way so that when he leaves, when he goes off to jail, whether or not he returns, so that when he leaves, some people, if the Holy Spirit is working, are listening, they will say, that's what I need to do. That's what I need to do. And think about it. Thus far, he said enough so that people know. Remember that Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet? He's been raised from the dead. He's appeared to me. He's the living and reigning Lord. He's telling me what to do. Ananias also declared that he's the promised Messiah. Remember the Messiah that was promised? The Messiah has come. The Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. He has fulfilled all the prophecies and he spoke to me. And then here's where he made it very clear. Verse 16, Ananias says to Paul, And now, why do you wait? What are you waiting for, Paul? Rise. You need to be baptized. You need to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit as a public declaration that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And then he says, washing away your sins. How do you do that? Calling on His name. Wash away your sins, calling on His name. Why does Paul include that in his testimony? In case anybody listening is saying, you know what, I need forgiveness of sins. I'm wretched. I'm going to be condemned. What do I do? I need to have my sins washed away. How can I do that? By calling on the name of the Lord. So in this testimony, he makes it very clear who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what they need to do if they want to become Christians. So when you have an opportunity to speak and people are answering, asking you some simple question, why do you go to church? You, you want to be saying in your mind when they say it, I am so glad you asked. <laughs> Hang on to your hat. Here we go. Lord, help me. But you, you want to have a very clear objective in mind, what you want to do. You not only want to say, God's made all the difference in the world in my life. You want to explain how so that He can make all the difference in their lives as well. So he defends his Jewish credentials. He defends his Christian conversion. And by the way, they come together. He's saying, I'm, I'm still Jewish. I'm just a Jewish Christian. Uh, some people like to say today, I'm a completed Jew. Because I'm just believing everything that the Old Testament promised. And that's all fulfilled in Jesus. I'm just as Jewish as ever. In fact, I'm more Jewish. I'm just clinging to the promises of our Old Testament. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And then he defends... His Gentile calling. In verse 17, he says, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, meaning Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. 
case you weren't with us uh, earlier in Acts. The first recorded martyr is Stephen. And as Stephen is giving his defense of the faith, um, he is literally stoned to death. And those who were stoning him, they, they took off their garments. You know, kind of like if I wanted to throw a baseball or something, I'd, I'd take off my jacket so I wouldn't be restricted. And they took off their garments, their outer garments, and they laid them at the feet of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is watching over their garments, meaning that he was giving approval to what they were doing. And Paul never got over that. Paul said, I was a blasphemer. I persecuted the church. I'm the worst of all sinners. Paul never got over that. And he says it right here. Boy, when they were stoning Stephen, I was right there watching over their garments. I gave approval to his death. But the people aren't going to listen. And he says, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see that that really put the Jews over the edge. Because they hated the Gentiles. Absolutely hated the Gentiles, but Paul is explaining why he is going to the Gentiles. But you know why he's going to the Gentiles? Because he loves God. And he loves people. And he will declare the gospel to anybody and everybody who will listen. And it doesn't matter what the cost is. It doesn't matter what the cost is. He's willing to do it. And even as we're declaring the gospel, maybe even that will testify. I heard a great story Friday night. I was, I was listening to Moody Radio and Pastor Ford was giving a message. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard him before. African-American pastor. And he uh, gave his quote-unquote testimony. And he had mentioned that many, many years ago, I don't, I don't know how old he is, it sounded like 20 or 30 years ago, um, he, he was a drug dealer in the inner city. And then a white man came into his neighborhood, shared the gospel with him. He was converted and came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then he and this white guy and other people in the neighborhood would get together for Bible studies. But other people in the neighborhood didn't like this gathering. And if you've ever been in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, a white guy really stands out. And they would see this white guy coming into their neighborhood and they were convinced he's a narc. And they said this to Pastor Ford. And they said, he can't be coming here. You're getting together with a narc. They, they thought they were in trouble because of all this drug dealing that was going on. And he said, no, I'm a Christian. I'm not involved in that anymore. I'm just worried about growing as a Christian. We just get together and we study the Bible. He led me to faith in Christ. And they said... the the pastor for that they said you better be telling the truth or we're going to kill both of you and they weren't kidding and pastor ford said he he went to his his, his white fr white friend and he said you you have to stop coming to this neighborhood it, it's too dangerous for you and his, and his white brother in christ said if jesus can lay down his life for me and die for me, then I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Pastor Ford said, you know how I responded. He said, I bawled like a baby. Never in my life 
had anybody say that they were willing to lay down their life for me. He said, my, my father abandoned me when I was, when I was a young kid, and, and here was a man saying that if it was going to cost him his life to fellowship with me, he was more than happy to do it. And he said, I, I just never got over that. Absolutely transformed my entire life. And you know what? Here's, here's what the Apostle Paul is doing. And the Jews know it. They know it. They know that in this defense, he's risking his life again. They know it. And that right there said something. They knew it. When they went away, many Jews, you know what they said. Can you believe that he did that? We almost killed him. He was off to jail. He was going to be, and then he, he gave another testimony at the risk of his life. And you know, many were saying, there's something to this. This is not normal. There is something to this. And I have no doubt that many were converted because the Apostle Paul spoke out at the risk of his life and that communicated a message loud and clear. That said, like a magnaphone, what he is saying is the truth. He's backing up with his very life. And they had to stand up and take notice. And let's just pray to God that when we have an opportunity to testify that our life backs up what we're saying and that people can see, you know what? He, she doesn't just talk to talk. They walk to walk. There is something to what they're saying. I need to look into that. And by the grace of God, we can be His instruments to lead unbelievers to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Jesus of Nazareth who lived a perfectly sinless life, who died on the cross in our place, who three days later rose from the dead, who 40 days later sent into heaven and even right now is seated at Your right hand ruling and reigning over the nations. For those of us who have put our faith in the Righteous One, we ask that You will empower us by Your Spirit to provide a good defense when the opportunity arises. Father, if there are any here this morning who have not seen clearly that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is their only hope of salvation, I would ask You to open their eyes to the truth and help them to see that if they would just admit that they're sinners, if they would just call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins would be washed away. They would be cleansed. They would be forgiven. They would be justified. They would be adopted into your family. And they would have confidence that heaven and eternal life is theirs. Father, we ask You to work mightily for Jesus' sake. Amen.